You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. From the heart of where innovation, money and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow. I'm Caroline Hyde of Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, Biden, he heads to the picket line. We go live to Wayne County, Michigan, where the president joins UAW workers on strike and discuss what it means for the EV industry. And we'll have the latest on big tech's antitrust battles as the FTC prepares to sue Amazon while Google's trial continues more ahead. Plus, Apple's biggest stud of the year. No, not its iPhone, of course, but it's its case. Being panned by customers, we'll have more on the product misfire ahead. Well, let's get out to someone who knows a thing or two about automakers, Ford in particular, and indeed, well, how all of this affects the EV transition. Chester Dawson, I'm pleased to say, is with us, and we are awaiting the president for, well, I mean, in long as living memory, we haven't seen a president join the picket line. How important is this in terms of aligning himself with the UAW and what that means for ongoing negotiations? Well, uh, that remains unclear. I mean, it's uh, something that, that Biden is doing at the invitation of uh, UAW head Sean Fain. Um, and he's clearly, you know, casting his lot with um, labor. Uh, we've seen a, a summer of a lot of labor unrest and activity, and it does feel like labor is a bit on the upswing. And this is clearly something the president feels, um, you know, kind of uh, dovetails with his message about better wages for workers. Um, it remains to be seen, however, if there's any breakthrough in the talks because the automakers and the union seem to be at loggerheads over any number of issues, including wages. Chester, Ford has been spared from the expansion of the strike. You know, the UAW focused a little more on Stellantis and GM. But yesterday evening, the, the union was upset with Ford about idling plants. What is the latest tension there? Yeah, that's right, Ed. Um, Ford had said that it's going to hit the pause button on an uh, expected uh, expansion in of its uh, electric vehicle, um, you know, production capacity uh, at a new plant that was to be built in Western Michigan with uh, some key support from a leading Chinese battery maker, CATL. Um, so the reasoning for that is a little unclear, but it comes a, a very delicate time with these UAW talks. Um, so it's something the UAW has objected to. 
uh, they see it as kind of a preemptive strike um, by Ford to prevent the unionization of those workers, among other things. So it just shows you how volatile this whole mix is. That plant was announced, you know, quite a while ago, and yet here we are. Um, it looks like there's going to be no shovels in the ground for the time being. Ultimately, this is all a sort of precarious balancing act, not only for corporate America, but also for the administration trying to push companies to invest in a transition at the same time as having to share what have been some decent profits with workers as well. Just what's the investor reaction been like? Have they been okay with the idea that basically for the short term, maybe these automakers do need to realign where some of the money goes? Well, um, yes, that's a very good question. The certainly public opinion seems aligned with the workers. Um, where investors stand is a little unclear. I mean, you know, these the stocks of say um, GM and Ford in particular have kind of been, um, you know, under a microscope, uh, really dating back to the start of these negotiations in midsummer. Um, so I, there is a big question about how much they can afford and still make all the investments they need. On the other hand, there does seem to be some uh, recognition that they're going to have to compromise. Maybe they give in on things like no more share buybacks. I mean, mm. that certainly seems to be something that investors might be okay with. The dividend, that's another matter. All right, Bloomberg's Chester Dawson, who leads our industrials and automaker coverage out of Detroit. Thank you so much. Look, at the core of this is the electrification of an entire industry. And what we're talking about is where the money should go. Joining us now is Arkady Sosinov, founder and CEO at Freewire Technologies, a charging infrastructure company, energy solutions company. And the union's argument is that lots of public money is going into the infrastructure it's going into the production capacity but the labor's not going with it your argument is that those jobs on the assembly line can be reallocated to your industry for an example that's right i think this is going to be a redistribution of jobs it's clear that the number of labor that it takes to produce an electric vehicle is 40 percent lower than that of a combustion vehicle jim farley has said this but the fact of the matter is if you look at the industry today three years ago we had two battery manufacturing plants across the U.S. Today we have 30 either live or planned to go live over the next four years. By the end of the decade, we have 20 times the battery manufacturing capacity that we did in this country at the start of this at the start of the decade. The fact is, the redistribution of jobs will happen. It won't impact everyone the same way. But going from jobs that pay today 18 to 32 dollars an hour to jobs that will invariably pay more in the battery manufacturing sector, that's fundamentally what's happening. And the UAW strike against the automobile OEMs is not fundamentally about their employees or their labor, it's fundamentally about the UAW because those that they will not be there to support battery manufacturing as well as uh, chip and semiconductor production. You have hundreds of fast chargers here in North America, you're active in Europe as well. Uh, are you in a position where you're like, okay, the money's coming from the Inflation Reduction Act, are you in a position to offer jobs to those that are currently working on the assembly line and are, wor are worried about their future? We have jobs that are available for UAW workers today that are displaced, but the fact of the matter is we won't be able to take all of the demands that these OEMs are, are, are have to uh, give up. So there are hundreds of companies in the space, from battery manufacturing to charger technologies, that are absorbing many of these jobs. And similar to what happened in the transition from fuels to solar, a lot of the jobs went into the solar industry, high-paying, distributed, dispersed jobs that uh, are seeing great results right now. Arkady, it's interesting you bring up solar. Solar is another industry that was highly dependent on China 
really. And you're seeing that same issue here at play with battery making here in the United States. We're just hearing from Chester Dawson about Ford being blasted by the UAW itself at the moment for putting on ice that $3.5 billion battery plant because it was going to be working with CATL. How much are you having to get supply chain from China? How much do you think jobs in the US are dependent on an ongoing somewhat friendly relationship? That's right, Carolyn. I think there is a concern that some of the battery production and as well as chips and semiconductors, charging infrastructure will come from the Chinese market. But unlike solar, I think the Biden administration has taken a good look at that ahead of the blossoming of this industry. We've already put certain tariffs in place on battery uh, cells coming in from China. And we've incentivized U.S. domestic manufacturing of chips, semiconductors, charging infrastructure, and batteries all across. That is, so we expect this this market to play out a little bit differently than it did in the solar industry. Freewire, particularly because of the incentives that are in place, we've transitioned all production out of China. Mm. In fact, we only have one single supplier left from China for a small, inconsequential part. The vast majority of our other suppliers are coming from the U.S. and European markets. And more broadly, therefore, you have seen incentives with which to do this. Can the industry eventually be standing on its own two feet without the necessary sort of help with an IRA or indeed ensuring that well, you're getting the right labor at the right time without the incentive process there? Yes, I think so. And you can see that, that corollary happening in Europe. Whereas in the U.S., we use the carrot via the incentives. In Europe, they really use the stick and said, by 2030, you're unable to drive electric or you're going to pay 25 pounds by going into the city of London if, unless you have an electric vehicle. And the business model there works. You can see that as adoption ramps up in the U.S., 7% of all new vehicles sold last quarter were fully electric in the U.S., 25% of new vehicles sold in California were fully electric. As adoption happens, the business models start to turn and work. So I am encouraged to see that while we do need incentives to get through the next two to three years, while adoption is still low, we won't need them by the end of the decade. What's your assessment, Arkady, of, of the lasting or near-term impact of this? You're hopeful, of course, that more people buy electric vehicles and use your chargers. But do you see that this, this temporary halt talks between the UAW and the OEMs is going to impact production for the next year, 18 months, and therefore the availability of, of EV models right now. That's right, but I think a lot of that demand will shift to the to Tesla, frankly speaking. They're still one of the largest adopters, uh, still one of the largest producers of electric vehicles. Um, this is only going to solidify their market dominance. And so while we will see fewer makes and models of vehicles from the traditional big three OEMs, there's still plenty of supply and capacity available for consumers to, to pick up. Well, we're going to be combining all of those stories with a discussion on Tesla's effect, well, with EU subsidies as well. Arkady Sosnov, absolutely great to speak with you. Thank you. Freewire Technologies on all things UAW here in the US. Meanwhile, speaking of strikes, look, voice actors, performers who work in video games, they voted to authorize a strike ahead of their contract negotiations this week. Like the SAG-AFTRA strikes, the concern for video game makers involves how artificial intelligence can be used to recreate the actors' voices and images. At the moment, the vote only authorizes a strike, and we're going to be bringing you any updates as to whether they actually action on that authorization, Ed. All right, coming up, we're going to go from what's happening on the ground with strikes to what's happening in Capitol Hill, Amazon versus the FTC. We'll talk about the impact of the FTC's lawsuit on the future of Amazon, but also big tech and antitrust at large. That's coming up next. This is Bloomberg Technology.
What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. It's official. The FTC is suing Amazon. FTC investigators in Lena Khan's office have been working on the complaint for months, which accuses the e-commerce giant of monopolizing online marketplace services by degrading quality for shoppers and then overcharging the sellers. Let's bring in Bloomberg's Anna Edgerton out of Seattle for more. And this is the fourth suit that the FTC's put in front of Amazon. Give us the specifics this time around of what they're claiming. Yeah, this is the big one that we've been waiting for. The other three complaints were focused on the consumer protection issues that the FTC saw with Amazon, and this is the big antitrust case. So, like you said, this case focuses on two different aspects of Amazon's business, both the way that the e-commerce giant sells to to customers and also the way that sellers use the website to reach their own customers. We had been anticipating it. Amazon, too, had been anticipating it, Anna. We get the response from the company criticizing the FTC lawsuit, saying, it's wrong on facts, on law, and they said they look forward to making the case in court. In fact, Amazon really says the FTC has, quote, radically departed from consumer mission. From that perspective, this isn't, this isn't a realignment of how the FTC sees big tech, isn't it? It's not just, look, what gets the consumer the cheapest price, but the way in which they go about doing it for the sellers, too. That's absolutely right, and that's one reason why this case is so interesting. You know, Lena Khan, the chair of the FTC, as a law student at Yale, wrote her um, most famous law review paper about Amazon's business practices and why current antitrust law is in inadequate to address that kind of anti-competitive measure. And this case is really going to be the test of some of those theories, whether or not you can fit a different kind of business like Amazon that didn't exist back when our current antitrust statutes were written a century ago, whether you can fit that kind of case into current antitrust law. So this will be a really important t case both to test Lena Khan's legal theory and also Amazon's defense. 
you know, Amazon's come out quickly in response to this. Caro outlined their response. But merchants on the site have had this complaint against Amazon for a really long time, that it's a one-sided relationship. Uh, the FTC suit is also in conjunction with 17 other states. How does it play out from here, Anna? You know, is this going to be long and drawn out and protracted, or do we expect sort of some quick decision to be made in the courts? Yeah, the seller aspect of this is really interesting because for these third-party merchants, Amazon is both a competitor and a business partner. So that's one reason why these merchants have long complained that Amazon has too much power over their relationship with their customers. So we'll see how this plays out in federal court. Like I said, this is going to be an important test of this kind of legal theory. And we do expect this to be you know, a long process. There will be plenty of appeals. And Amazon had asked for Lena Khan to recuse herself from from this case because of kind of the past history writing about and investigating the, the company. So, you know, we'll see what kind of defense they present in court, but they also have been waiting for this for a long time and they're definitely prepared to make their case. Important time for you to be out there in Seattle. We thank you, Anna Edgerton. SEC Chair Gary Gensler appearing before the House Financial Services Committee tomorrow to testify about regulation of the crypto industry, a conversation that has been ongoing for a little while now. Joining us in the program, Bloomberg Shanali Basak, but also Kara Calvert, Coinbase head of U.S. policy. Shanali, take it away. Kara, thank you for joining us ahead of this pretty critical hearing. The reality of the situation, though, is the SEC has a lot on its agenda, crypto being just one part of it. The lawmakers themselves also facing a potential government shutdown, a lot going, going on. How do you win the attention over to the needs that you have for the crypto industry when there are so many distractions? Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me today. It's a really pivotal moment here in Washington, and I think what we're, how we are doing this is we are bringing the faces, the voices, the Americans who own and care about crypto, and they are coming to Washington for the first ever Stand with Crypto Day tomorrow. So we have more than 50 companies represented, representing more than you know, thousands and thousands of jobs across the United States. They are coming to meet with their members of Congress to talk about why they care about crypto policy. Policy, and that is historic. And it just so happens that it's on the exact same day that Chairman Gensler is testifying in front of the House Financial Services Committee. Well, what does this mean for the constituents that you're bringing down to Washington? When they're having conversations with lawmakers, are they mostly preparing those lawmakers to grill Gary Gensler tomorrow, or are they trying to win back lawmakers that are not yet on their side? I think they're trying to educate, but I think it's also really trying to help people understand why crypto matters to the 52 million Americans who own it today in the United States. And that is something that there are so many lawmakers that understand why crypto is important, but there are a few outliers, and there are some that are saying, including Mr. Gensler, that this industry is rife with corruption and fraud. And these folks are coming to Washington today to say, this is my job you're talking about, my family, my economic situation, your state, that really needs to consider how this, how this industry as a whole is influencing the country, is influencing the future of the country and innovation. Cara, I appreciate the, the education argument. What is the end goal, though? Is it, is it sort of a specific oversight from a legislation perspective that you're looking for at the end of the road? 
Absolutely. I think Congress is it an opportunity, has an opportunity to pass legislation that will create a comprehensive framework for crypto. It's what Americans are asking for. It's about consumer protection. It's about enabling innovation and really about U.S. competitiveness as, as a whole. And so what we're here to talk about, both as Coinbase and I think from the rest of the founders as we've had discussions across the country, they want to see legislation, whether it's the Financial Innovation and Technology Act for the 21st century, if it's the stablecoin bill that has been worked on in a bipartisan fashion over the course of the last year to 18 months. There is legislation on the table that I think Congress really needs to consider and, and vote to pass. A vote in November for this legislation is a vote for consumer protection and for Americans who want to own and use crypto. A vote against this legislation is really a vote against the future innovation, jobs, economics. Yes. That is what is going to carry a lot of these members through through 2024. Cara, a few weeks ago, the Ripple co-founder, Chris Larson, joined me on the program, and he said that above Gary Gensler at the, the administration level, the Biden administration has chosen to drive the crypto and blockchain industries offshore. Is that a position that Coinbase shares? It is certainly having an impact, yes. There have been studies done where 2% of developers are going overseas. That means a million jobs by 2030. And if you think about technology, I've been working in technology for 20 years, you see startups, they have knock-on effects. Four to six jobs per small startup. That means four to six million jobs that are going overseas by 2030. So yes, it's having a very real impact where unelected bureaucrats are making decisions that I think Americans really rely on, on a officials to do and so I think that the administration and others really need to think carefully about how they proceed in the next six to 18 months. There's a lot at stake from Coinbase obviously as well when you think about your own suit when it comes to the SEC. What are you most looking for Congress to tackle first? You have now a new stake in, in Circle so that puts stable coins on the table more dramatically and there's also the staking issue. What do you prioritize? All of it. Honestly, we I think the comprehensive nature of the legislation is really important because at this point digital assets is not a one size fit all ecosystem. We have commodities, we have stable coins, and then we have what is, I think, a fledgling industry right now with digital asset securities because there's no pathway to registration for, SE, for the SEC. So we really need a comprehensive approach. So by that nature, we're really pushing for, for pieces of legislation in all three of those areas. All right, Cara Calvert, Coinbase head of U.S. policy, and of course, our own Shanali Basak. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. Ed Ludlow here in San Francisco. And Caroline Hyde in New York. You have some pictures we want to be brought. Yeah, President Biden has touched down at Detroit Metropolitan Airport, Wayne County, Michigan. As we know, Caroline, he's going to later be meeting with uh, UAW representatives joining the picket line at the invitation of the UAW right now, meeting with local representatives ahead of that. And the talk's ongoing between the UAW, principally GM and Stellantis, the sticking point. Ford was spared from the expanded strike, but there are issues over it, pausing plans for new battery facilities in that state.
President Biden on the ground there in Wayne County, Michigan. Yeah, meanwhile, let's get a quick check on the markets as we well, discuss what's happening with autos. But more broadly, as we see what's happening in the technology field, I just want to be looking at the Nasdaq 100. Still underwater. We're worried about consumer sentiment today, economic environment, and more broadly, what the borrowing costs are happening. Two-year yield, we're getting actually a two-year debt auction later today. Two basis points on the higher side, still above that five percentage point levels. Meanwhile, Bitcoin is on the downside. The story of dollar strength, interestingly, even as we perhaps see some slightly weaker economic data, but that dollar strength has really been narrative that we've seen over the last few trading days. Move on. Let's have a look at what's happening on individual names. I bring you T-Mobile. It's one of the key outperformers from a point perspective. We're up eight-tenths of a percent. They're fighting dish in court. They want new airwaves to be sold. In particular, there seems to be a delay on the $3.5 billion of airwaves purchase that dish is going to be doing from T-Mobile. I'm looking at Amazon on the downside, as we know the FTC making clear its intentions and deciding to, of course, lay the focus on competition when it comes to Amazon today. We see the same with Alphabet. And of course, we understand that Eddie Q is going to be giving evidence over the Google trial as well today. Let's get back to Capitol Hill, where Apple is testifying at the Google antitrust trial to defend what is a lucrative deal that made Google's search engine, we understand, the default option on the iPhone. The DOJ alleging that Google has paid billions of dollars to maintain a monopoly over the search market via agreements with tech rivals like Apple. Let's bring in Molly Schutz for more now at the moment. And we have, we understand, Eddie Q actually currently talking at the trial. The argument being that, well, he just says it's a better product. And that's why they've taken payment and made it the default search. Yeah, basically what he's saying is, look, if we at Apple could have made a better product, we would have done it ourselves. Like, they've, com they do compete with Google on other products like Maps and on iPhone software. So Apple's saying, we are happy to use Google as a default because it's clearly a better product. Can you outline just how many billions Google is paying? Because is this just, oh, yes, here, have a billion or so, or is this actually take a percentage of our advertising revenue, and that's actually something that's happening with the competitors too? So these are being kept as confidential numbers, but what we do know from some of the early court uh, proceedings was that by 2020, Google was paying Apple uh, four to seven billion dollars uh, for these for these uh, for these agreements, and overall they get about 10 billion dollars annually in these uh, to be default uh, to be the default on web and phone browsers. So it is. Uh, a significant ch uh, chunk for them and then clearly companies like Apple they get a cut of the revenue that is generated in those search results. Uh, Molly, good to see you. If, if you're coming to this story cold, you, you'd be a bit confused, right? You're like, okay, this is about Google. It's decision by Apple to use Google search, but there's a much broader Google antitrust story. What are the other battles that, that Alphabet, the parent of Google, faces? Well, the main, the main battle really is about search. Obviously, for right now, we're talking about search and Apple because of Apple's iPhone. And, but obviously, you know, search and Google search is available on web browsers and on Android phones and on lots of other um, you know, products as well. Um, and it's not illegal for them to be dominant or even to have an, a, a, a monopoly. But the problem is, and what the, FT, what the DOJ is looking at, is whether, you know, what kinds of agreements did they strike uh, to maintain that monopoly? And did they harm their competitors like Microsoft Bing and DuckDuckGo that have been big complainants in this case? Um, did they harm them in the process?
All right, Bloomberg's Molly Schuetz, thank you so much. Let's keep the conversation going and bring in Lee Hepner, legal counsel at the American Economic Liberties Project, for more, not just on this uh, specific, specific focus on Google search and iPhone, but also, of course, we had the headlines from Amazon and the FTC. And that's where I want to start, Lee. The FTC has done what we expected, filed its suit in federal court against Amazon. Your reaction, but also thoughts on the likelihood that the FTC wins in this case. Yeah, and, and first of all, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm glad we're starting off with FTC versus Amazon. This is a case that uh, a lot of people have been waiting for. Um, it's certainly been part of why Chair Lena Khan has risen to prominence um, and become such a leader of the Federal Trade Commission. Uh, you know, this is a case where the FTC is alleging, really, that Amazon has violated the law not by being big, but by preventing uh, other rivals from getting big enough to challenge it. Uh, it uses its vast market power to implement several strategies simultaneously designed to keep rivals from gaining the number of sellers and buyers that they need to compete to actively uh, compete with Amazon. Uh, one of those uh, pieces that uh, I think we heard a little bit, a bit about earlier in your program is the fee that they charge to small businesses who sell on Amazon. That fee has risen dramatically uh, over the years and is now estimated at some 50% of every item that you purchase on Amazon uh, goes to Amazon itself. Uh, furthermore, those small businesses are prevented from raising their prices on other platforms, meaning that they are just losing that money. These are small yeah. businesses crunched by Amazon, and that's really what this is about. These are, though, also perhaps beneficial for consumers in some way if they're keeping prices lower. That's what we've heard Amazon articulate, in particular their lawyer coming out and saying, look, this could mean fewer products, this could mean higher prices. And ultimately, Amazon claims the FTC has radically departed from consumer-focused mission. What, what do you think the argument to counter that is at the moment, Lee? Right. Well, first of all, Amazon has been able to raise its price for Amazon Prime uh, multiple times over the past several years. Uh, usually when the price goes up, consumers take their business elsewhere. Uh, if Amazon is not losing market share, even though they are raising prices, uh, that's indicative of monopoly power. Uh, customers are being hurt in other ways, though, too. And, and we are dealing with uh, a new type of monopolist where price isn't the only thing that matters. When you lose things like innovation, you use you lose things like product quality. Uh, when you lose the ecosystem of small businesses that are out there trying to innovate and create better products, uh, that's a real cost to the consumer too. There are costs to workers who are being injured in uh, Amazon warehouses. I think when we start to think uh, more broadly about the external costs of what Amazon's business model entails, it's not just about price. It's about the societal costs that ripple out from Amazon's business model. And let's therefore tie together what we were just discussing when it comes to Google and Apple trying to vindicate the payments that it takes to keep it as its key search. But the argument goes is that, look, with Google as a pretty dominant force, but a good dominant force in terms of actually user interaction with search, but ultimately it's stifling innovation because it hasn't allowed the others, the competitors such as Bing and DuckDuckGo, to be able to access the data needed to become a better product. How much has search lost out because of that, do you think? 
Yeah, it's a relevant comparison. I mean, Google is a free product. People uh, intuitively like Google search. I think the problem is compared to what? There's no real credible alternative to Google search. They command 90% of this market. And we're learning today uh, with Eddie Q on the stand. Uh, your last uh, speaker spoke a little bit about what he was going to be testifying to really the way that Google is able to degrade privacy protections and to scrape information about users of Google search. So anybody who thinks that Google is uh, providing a truly free product is mistaken. They are gathering information from you and selling it to advertisers uh, who they are then abusing on the other side of the market. So, so Google is a, a really apt comparison of something that appears free but really has a lot of costs. Uh, and we're learning about those details in this trial right now. When we had the Microsoft Activision deal, there were all kinds of questions posed that had the FTC won, Lena Khan would go after many other tech companies and she would have momentum. In the end, Activision and Microsoft were able to proceed in this, in this jurisdiction. There was a feeling that Lena Khan was picking battles that she couldn't win, and yet they're proceeding with this federal case against Amazon. I, I, I say all of that to ask you, how strong is this FTC as a regulator? How much likelihood does it have of being successful in the, in the actions it's choosing to take? Well, let me start with just saying that the FTC is appealing the decision uh, in the Microsoft Activision case. That case is not uh, dead in the water, though uh, Microsoft Activision has prevailed in many jurisdictions. Um, you know, these are cases that are difficult to bring. You know, these are antitrust laws that were uh, crafted over a century ago to, to treat a different type of monopolist. Uh, they have been eroded uh, dramatically over the 50 years to focus on things that are solely about uh, consumer price, for instance while you know, completely ignoring other issues around the benefits of competition and innovation in markets and the value of small businesses and the dignity of workers. Uh, so I don't think this is as much about the FTC as it is about the law itself and the way that it's been eroded by the courts. So you know, these cases are not uh, easy to bring. Uh, the FTC is going to have an uphill battle with Amazon, uh, as it did with Microsoft Activision. Um, I don't think that's a reason not to bring cases yeah. about undisputed monopolists in our economy. Uh, Lee, I think what's interesting, though, is we actually have got competition in the world of search. And it's ChatGPT. Suddenly, we have seen innovation of a gargantuan scale in artificial intelligence and generative AI. So is that not some sort of argument about the fact that, no, it hasn't stifled innovation, this sort of, well, product that everyone really likes? Well, I, I love this example, and, and we talk about this a lot, that, that AI is going to shake up Google search. It's going to shake up all these different parts of our economy. I think when you look at the analyses that are being conducted right now, you see that that's actually not the case. Uh, Microsoft had a lead with AI uh, on its search engine and was not able to disrupt Google's market share at all. I think what you'll see with AI is that this new technology that is supposed to, to spring a new innovation is just being grafted onto the market structures of today. The monopolists are going to control the development of that technology. That's what the FTC, or that's what the case, uh, the DOJ's case against Google search is right now, is about how AI gets to develop over the next quarter century. Is Google going to have a stranglehold on that development? Of the many actions the FTC's taken, Lee, quickly, which do you think it legally has the best chance of success against which company? 
Well, I'm really excited about the Amazon case. I mean, they've been laying the foundation for this for quite some time. They've been methodically researching this. Uh, many cases have been brought in state courts that they are building on. Uh, I don't think the FTC would be bringing uh, this landmark case that it filed this morning if it didn't think it had a good opportunity to win. Uh, you can look at any of the other successes that the FTC has already had, though. Uh, you know, this is uh, actually a remarkably effective commission. Uh, Despite a couple high-profile court losses, the FTC is doing a darn good job, uh, and I'm excited to see this Amazon case proceed. Lee Hapner, legal counsel at the American Economic Liberties Project. We thank you for your time. All right, time for talking tech. First up, Canal Network Technology is officially filing for its Hong Kong initial public offering. The logistics unit of Alibaba, Canal would be the first of its spin-off units to go public. Initial reports said the firm was hoping to raise at least $1 billion. City, Citex Securities and JP Morgan are the sponsors. And Roku and Samsung are getting hit with a lawsuit targeting tech companies for how they advertise. Both companies sell ads that leverage automatic contact recognition, or ACR, to collect users data based on individual interests. The two investors behind the suit say the methods used to collect the data violate six of their patents. Plus, the European Union is urging social media platforms to boost their efforts fighting disinformation. X, formerly known as Twitter, was cited as the biggest outlet for peddlers of disinformation pertaining to Russia and pro-Kremlin narratives. European Commission Vice President Vera Jourova said platforms should act swiftly ahead of elections over the next year. Caroline. Meanwhile, Ed, look, the new material for Apple's eco-friendly iPhone cases drawing some criticism from consumers. One review went as far as calling it one of the worst accessories Apple's produced. Oof, Bloomberg's Mark Gurman, pretty sure, is all over it. And what is it that people don't like, apart from perhaps a slightly pricey point? Well, I'm using a clear case, so uh, no impact to me. I had a feeling that the fine woven case wasn't going to be so hot, so uh, I decided to get a plastic case this year. In the past, I used the leather cases. Uh, fine woven, it is picking up stains when you leave it on a table. Uh, if you go into an Apple store like many of us did over the weekend and you saw the fine woven cases on display, a lot of them are scratched up. I think people are taking their nails and scratching on it and uh, pretending it's like a, an old school vinyl record, right? It makes a similar sound, uh, though it feels a little bit like suede and it feels a little bit like a record. So clearly people are unhappy with the dirt and the oil and um, anything from your fingers that it may pick up. They don't like the feel of the material. It just doesn't feel premium compared to leather uh, and it's coming in at about the same price. It's very understandable why Apple made this move, right? They wanted to transition away from leather and all their accessories, so they came up with a new material to do that. Uh, I and many others just don't think that they landed on that right material with fine woven. Perhaps uh, there's other materials they can use, uh, like some of the materials in fake leathers many car makers are using. Uh, so clearly there may be an alternative that Apple will need to switch to in the future. The problem, Mark, is that during the Wonderlust event, they, they really emphasize the accessories moving away from leather, the sustainability of the new materials. But the strategy has not gone down well with the consumer. It's part of basically bigger picture sustainabilities and, and carbon reduction goals, right? 
Yeah, it's a long-term thing. So you know, if this fine woven ends up being the failure that I, I think it is, uh, and then they end up having to move away from fine woven, there are alternatives. They can make a fake leather. They can source a fake leather uh, that feels like real leather. They could improve this material uh, significantly, right? But what about all the people who've already bought this case? Uh, I saw people saying the best thing you can do with the fine woven case if you bought one is leverage the Apple two-week return policy and bring it back to the store or ship it back to the right. online store uh, and get a different type of case. Now, Apple d does still sell the silicon cases. Uh, I have used those. I think they're pretty good. The problem is if you are wearing tight jeans, uh, the case could really get stuck in your pocket. It picks up lint uh, very easily, uh, but they are quite protective. And of course, there's a third-party marketplace of cases. Uh, I've already seen and used plenty of third-party cases on the 15. They're pretty good alternatives out there. All right, Bloomberg's chief Apple correspondent with the show and tell there, Mark Gurman. <laughs> Thank you very much. Now, coming up here on Bloomberg Technology, social media app Visco has got a new CEO. Our conversation with Eric Whitman on his vision for the future of that platform. That conversation next. This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Xavier Neal is investing 200 million euros, that's about $212 million, in, you guessed it, artificial intelligence. He wants to lure top French AI engineers back to their home country. Some of this investment is going to be for a future research lab to be located in Paris. Now, remember, he's one of the people behind Station F in Paris as well, a big incubator there. Plus, there's also going to be slack cloud supercomputing capabilities powered by NVIDIA hardware. While the rest, well, we understand it's going to go for funding some of those startups, Ed. Interesting with Mistral. Yeah, one startup we've been talking to recently is Visco, the photo and video editor tool that went viral a few years ago on the back of the Visco girl trend. Recently announced, of course, the appointment of a new CEO, Eric Whitman, who was the president of the company up until that point. I caught up with him last week to discuss the content creator battleground that counts the likes of YouTube and X in the contestants and how he intends on growing Visco in that market. Have a listen. 
It's a fairly dynamic landscape. Things are changing quite often. I think if you take a step back and you think about creators first, which is very much our ethos, and what their needs are, I think what you're going to find is that creators really want tools to help them make things more quickly, more efficiently. They want a really healthy community that isn't being manipulated by algorithms or, or, or advertisements. And they want to be discovered by prospective clients or be able to more efficiently manage their businesses and have great relationships with their clients. So the platform that really does all three of those things very well, I think th that's going to be the platform that wins. And that's very much our mission and what we're trying to do here at Visco. In October 2021, the New York Times reports that Pinterest is considering buying Visco. I think about some similar properties, Instagram and where it sits within Meta's portfolio. You're the CEO now. Strategically, would you be open to a sale to a bigger platform uh, to help Visco grow and, and help its technology be more used? Yeah, I think at the end of the day, if it benefits our creators, and if it helps us pursue this bigger, more ambitious strategy and vision that we have, then that's something that we would have a conversation with our board about and make sure it's the right decision for us. How does Visco culturally grow? You know, Visco Girl was what people said and kind of the peak of Visco's use. How do you position it culturally to give it traction like TikTok, frankly, has had at such a high level here in the United States for a long time? Yeah, so for us, it's really about, again, focusing on creators and their needs. And because we are a subscription business, we, we're not trying to drive a different type of engagement that's really promoting more ad-driven business models. And that gives us a lot of freedom to actually make sure that we are actually paying attention to what their needs are. And their needs continue to change. We're hearing more and more from creators today that they don't feel that a, a company really has their back that's really supporting them them first, and that's really going to continue to be our focus. Visco CEO there, Eric Whitman. Meanwhile, look, that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology, Ed. Yeah, recap on our podcast, wherever you get your podcasts, on the terminal, as well as online, Apple, Spotify, and iHeart. Big theme of the show has been regulation, mm. oversight, what's happening on Capitol Hill, what's happening with the FTC, and a number of big tech names, and the world of crypto in the crosshairs. That's all the focus on the Bloomberg Technology Podcast. From San Francisco and over in New York City, this is Bloomberg Technology. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.